Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. And you are listening to Living the Dream everyone's favourite anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Um, today you are joined by me, Dave, and John. How's it going, John? Yeah, I'm well. How are you, Dave? I'm, I'm very excited because we've got a special guest tonight. We've got Troy Henderson. Troy, how's it going? Bloody awesome, mate. And Troy is fair to say is the face of universal basic income in Australia. Is that right, Troy? <laughs> I don't know if I can claim that, but uh, maybe in in a very small pond, you recently, know, at least someone recently, who posts, who, who posts a lot about basic income. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a huge movement yet, but thanks for the uh, the compliment, Dave. And do you have any uh, any social media address that you would like pe- to advertise at the moment if people want to get in contact with you for any discussion coming after the show? Sure. So Twitter is just at Troy C. Henderson. And John, what are you on Twitter? At John Pacini. And I'm Which is at, correct. at with Sofa Senses. And look, this show's I think's really been kind of a long time coming. People have yep. um, been asking for us to do a show on UBI for a long time because it's certainly everyone's it's what everyone's talking about at the moment. Uh, was it this week where Elon Musk came out to talk about the UBI? He supported He's it? been talking about it for a while. Uh, he, he probably had another go this week. I, I think more recent, recently it's been uh, Zuckerberg coming Zuckerberg. out in favour of it. The World Economic Forum recently has released some discussion on it. The OECD has released some discussion on it. I think it's one of those things where there's like a number of different conversations that is going on. Um, and Troy, you're, you're, is your study based on the UBI at the moment? Yeah, so my... PhD thesis is on options for basic income in Australia, and I've got about nine months left to go, so I'm sort of fairly advanced in that process, and it's in political economy at Sydney Uni, so that's a sort of um, perspective I'm coming to it from. That's brilliant. Cool. All right, cool. So, I, like, obviously there's been a lot of discussion about it, and there's a lot of stuff we wanted to sort out. I guess to kind of put my cards on the table, I'm I, I feel that maybe the discussion around UBI, the radical discussion is being swamped currently, where there was a discussion that was kind of locating it within a kind of anti-capitalist analysis, but increasingly I think there's far more of a social democratic analysis, which is situating the UBI versus uh, maybe some idea of a guaranteed job um, jobs guarantee as a reform that could happen within capitalism and potentially solve capitalism. And then you've got this other discussion that's going on at a higher level, which is basically an attempt to save capitalism, I think. So maybe to, to make sense of this, I was wondering if you could just kind of explain to us, Troy, what's the basic element of the idea behind a UBI? Okay, so do you want me to start just cutting straight to the idea or going back through the whole history of its evolution? Well, I I think both would be interesting. I think first the idea and then maybe some idea of the kind of political (laughs) history of the idea. So the easiest way to think about UBI is to think of the U as having two meanings. It means universal and unconditional. Basic is some idea that the amount you're getting covers basic needs, and there's a big debate about what that actually means. And income really means a regular payment in cash. So it's not in kind uh, or in some other form. So it's a universal, unconditional, regular payment in cash to meet your basic needs. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you know, let's, one question there. When we talk about universal, does that mean all the citizens or everyone in a territory? 
again, that is another huge debate. So, and, and people met it in ways, right? So you could say citizens or you could say permanent residents or you could say just anybody who happens to be in a given territory and probably your politics is going to inform where you come down uh, in terms of answering that question. But, you know, th that's obviously a huge debate within not just the basic income literature but among basic income activists as to whether you know, this is just going to be a thing for rich countries and it'll exclude migrants and poor citizens and become a part of, you know, Fortress Europe or Fortress Australia or Fortress America. Mm -hmm. But I would say that a hell of a lot of developing countries have basic income movements as well. You know, it's mm -hmm. been considered in significant ways in India to a very limited extent in China, to a greater extent in South Korea. Uh, you can't say South Korea is a developing country. Um, and, and there are various pilot programs being run in, in African countries. And what's the... And what about the... Sorry, John. Sorry. Go. I was just going to ask the same question, which is the, the political history of this idea. I understand that, that, that some people date it back several hundred years. Um, and, yeah, what's your take on that? So I think this is a very, um, you know, basic typology, I suppose, of thinking about it in terms of four moments for basic income. And I think I'd start off by saying it has generally been a pretty marginal idea, right, throughout the history of capitalism. And, and it is very much an idea uh, associated with the development of capitalism, but also the nation state. So starting with Tom Paine in the late 18th century, so the radical Anglo-American Democrat who is often credited as the first person to come up with a proposal for a type of basic income which combined a one-off capital grant that you got at age 21 and then a universal age pension at age 50. And that would be funded through basically an estate tax, so a tax on landed property. So that's where it kicks off. That got absolutely nowhere for... Um, for poor Tom back in, in the French Revolution. But then after that, uh, you have two fairly obscure movements. Uh, I imagine even, I don't know if even um, guys like you who are experts in labour history have heard of these groups. You've probably heard of the first one, the Jeffersonian or Jacksonian Democrats, so sort of the 1820s mm -hmm. and 1830s America, right, who were committed to this idea of... Um, you know, America was losing its opportunity for uh, a nation of property and independence and yeoman farmers, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and what you needed to do was to socialise rent and redistribute wealth um, in either land itself or through money that came from a rental income. And then you had another possibly more obscure group, called the Belgian Liberal Socialists around the time of the 1848 European revolutions who proposed very similar ideas. And what I'd say about this whole group, which I would refer to as the 19th century moment for basic income, is that they were very focused on correcting for the original sin of the expropriation of landed property. Mm. And, it, and it came from quite a petty bourgeois class position. The, the Hobsbawm would describe them as the little men or the small men, you know, mm. the, the, the yeah. artisans or the small farmers who were getting absorbed progressively over the next 50 years, as you guys would know, into the proletariat. Partly inspired by some of the utopian socialists, so for example, one of the Belgian guys, Charlier, was directly um, influenced by Fourier, another one of the mm. utopian socialists. Um, but in a way, maybe they weren't quite as utopian because mm. they still really did believe in, um, you know, basically trying to even out the starting points for the little men and little women. They were quite progressive in terms of gender, actually. You know, everyone should get this um, this basic income. But basically, the aristocrats are really the enemy and you need wealth taxes and inheritance taxes to um, even out the life chances of you know the the, the average mm. punter to make the yep. best of the personal endowments that they had. Mm. 
That's interesting because it, 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 I don't see an awful lot of difference there between, say, sort of people who are talking about the basic income and, and development and people who are developing a version of the welfare state, you know? Yeah. I, I think if we go back that far, there really wasn't much concept of a welfare state at all, right? You know, to... to yeah. Just, you, you know, that's in such an early stage of industrial capitalism. I also think it's absolutely no fluke that this stuff developed in the UK. You know, those ideas were put forward in the UK, in Belgium and in the US, some of the more sort of advanced early capitalist states. And they were explicitly put forward as a type of, and this is the same, the same is true for some of the later examples, as a type of middle way between, um, you know, rising industrial capitalism and some idea of socialism, I suppose. Yeah, it's fascinating. Do you want me to go on? Yeah, please. And then we're up to the fourth moment. I think, yeah, it? indeed. Okay. So, sorry, that was only the first moment. So I'll <laughs> okay. go through the next yeah. couple very quickly. There's, there's a gap in the literature in the, the mid-19th century, which is an interesting gap where there doesn't seem to be much talk at all about um, any form of basic income. My very tentative hypothesis about this is it's a time where you get the, the really full development of industrial capitalism in the late 19th century and you get the rise of socialist parties and, and the union movement that are much more powerful forces then you only see a reappearance of an idea of basic income after the First World War in Britain. And it's really as a solution to the social question. So there's a huge increase in unemployment, a big slump really after the First World War, after a brief recovery in the early 1920s. And you have a sort of motley crew of Fabian socialists, Labour Party activists, um, people who would become Keynesian economists, Quakers, and liberal activists who are all proposing some form of basic income. Again, the similarity is a lot of these people, both in the 19th century and early 20th century, they had some sort of religious uh, background. They did frame it as a compromise between labour and capital. But by the early 20th century, you get a more um, of a macroeconomic focus. It's not so obsessed with... Um, redistributing wealth from landed property or the socialization of rent, which I actually think is what Henry George picked up in the US yeah, yeah. in the late 19th century. And that's where those ideas went. Um, so they become more of a macroeconomic concern in the idea that wealth is socially produced. Therefore, we all have certain needs and part of those needs can be met through a, a basic income. And, and that was, you know, that was a fairly serious proposal, particularly by a liberal peer, a woman called Lady Juliet Rees-Williams, who, you know, took it to the highest levels of government, an alternative to the Beveridge Report in 1943, which, of course, was later adopted um, yep. in the UK. And But, again, she was an anti-socialist. She was part of the Liberal Party and she couldn't really form any alliance with the organised with organized Labor, not that they were interested at all, um, because of her sort of anti-socialist uh, perspective. The third moment, very quickly, is about the US in the 1960s and 70s. So we jump ahead to Nixon, really, Lyndon Johnson, then Nixon, at the end of the long boom. And this is seen by New Deal Democrats in the bureaucracy as potentially a solution to poverty. And this is, ironically, as close as we got to actually implementing some type of basic income, a negative mm. income tax, in a major capitalist country, which was through Nixon's family's assistance plan between 1969 and 1971, got passed by the House of Representatives twice, defeated in the, by the Senate Finance Committee. And there were a whole lot of big trials of basic income in North America and Canada with about 10,000 people uh, that threw up some very interesting empirical results. Hmm. And this is around the time that Milton Friedman jumps on the the bandwagon, is it? So he, he got on the bandwagon earlier than that. And maybe this is a good um, time to come back to Dave's earlier question about the different things people mean when they talk about basic income, right? So 
Friedman was completely explicit that, you know, it would be a more efficient way of providing some targeted income to poor people, but also shrinking the welfare state. I mean, that, that was the point of it. It's, uh, you know, explicitly written, whereas other social Democrats around the same time, so including people like um, J.K. Galbraith, were supporting mm. universal basic income as something that might be in addition to aspects of the welfare state and macroeconomic policies designed to pursue full employment. Yep. So, the, and this is one of the points of critique um, that Bill Mitchell makes, right? So, so it's, that's his yep. name, isn't it? So, Bill Mitchell, if people don't know, is uh, he's involved in the group Coffee, is it? Which is the I forget what the acronym breaks down for, but they're kind of centre centre of full employment and equity. So, the best way to describe them is kind of like. Radical Keynesians? Do you think that's an adequate description? I think that's a fair description. Radical Keynesians, yeah, radical Keynesians with this addition, which maybe we won't get into, of modern monetary theory, which yeah. has its own kind of group of parents, which is, you know, that the state has no fiscal constraints on it at all uh, in terms of, you, you know, basically, yes, if if yeah. you have a situation where you don't have full employment, the state is not spending enough. There's not and, enough fiscal stimulus in the economy. And I, I guess that you've just touched on, like, the core part of his critique. You know, he, he seems to make the argument that UBI is, you know, fundamentally the kind of idea that Milton Friedman put forward. And Milton Friedman's aim was to break the state from having a commitment to guaranteeing full employment, therefore, you know, and, and that that's a defeat in his in his eyes. So, that that seems to be in terms of the debate, Milton Friedman's influence for those who oppose UBI that are kind of social democrats of one side or another are relatively kind of important. So, how does it go from Milton Friedman to now being an idea that's associated with the kind of Navara left? <laughs> you know, because I think it's always had this complex history and really if, if you look at the whole history of the idea well Friedman's jumping on the bad wagon pretty late I mean not as late as some of the anti-capitalists say you know Andre Gortz became a convert uh, you know to, to basic income and we've seen more recently you know people like Paul Mason in post-capitalism and um, the guys who wrote Inventing the Future yes, are all advocating yeah. Yes, exactly. So they're all seeing so, – so these are two very different debates. I think just sticking with Bill Mitchell for a second, who is someone who I've known for years and seen talk on job guarantee schemes many, many times, and I have a lot of respect for him. But I think, you know, they do have a somewhat limited vision in terms of their utopia is full employment forever with a job guarantee scheme. Mm -hmm. Right. And a job guarantee scheme. OK, so basically the state is responsible for aiming for full employment when it misses that in terms of the private sector and regular public sector economy. Then this job guarantee scheme should act, act as a sort of shock absorber, a buffer stock, as he calls it, that would soak up that, you know, reserve army of labour and instead of paying them the dole, pay them the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, if I had if that was implemented tomorrow, I would say, yes, that's better than workfare. Um, but I, I disagree that, you know, where Bill or some other left wing critics of basic income go, oh, basic income is a nasty neoliberal plot. I mean, I don't really buy that argument. I mean, the vast majority of basic income activists and scholars and advocates I know don't think you should abolish the welfare state, right, and just have a cash voucher. That's really the most right-wing libertarian version of UBI. So mm -hmm. it's not exactly a straw man argument, but I, I'm, you know, it's an argument that I'm not a huge fan of because, I mean, no progressive person or person on the left is going to say, yeah, let's have a $15,000 basic income in Australia and abolish Medicare and uh, public schooling and aged care support, right? That, that's uh, – and I, and I also find it, you know, a little bit amusing, the idea that the right is so incredibly clever that they're going to sneak in this massive uh, 
welfare reform kind of behind the public's back and uh, there won't be resistance to that kind of massive change. Like, to, to me, the whole, that whole approach... Should I... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Kit, like, I'm jumping ahead here because one of the things that I really want to kind of get to is how yeah, sure. UBI makes us think about capitalism and changing capitalism, but just as much as the idea itself. But, yeah, please continue with the history. Okay, so I'll I just say one other thing about, you know, okay, maybe I'll just go to the next bit of the history. Uh, that there are so many technical things to discuss in terms of, say, Bill Mitchell's critique of basic income. But I could say that, so if the third moment was with Nixon, which mm. completely failed and we can, whatever we want to call it, neoliberalism, the rise of Reagan, Thatcher, blah, 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 all, all that kind of social reform got blown out of the water and really it was only kept alive by philosophers in the 1980s and 1990s people like philippe van parijs who's a belgian philosopher who's really the key figure in basic income studies of the last four decades and he wrote a very interesting book called real freedom for for all what if anything can justify capitalism which is kind of the central text for people who are interested in basic income studies and he's a very interesting guy but anyway it lived on in academia until the global financial crisis and the Great Recession because, let's face it, yeah, no one cared about this stuff until you had a huge crisis of capitalism, at least no one outside of academia in small circles, and you had a whole lot of people concerned about inequality and job losses through automation, et cetera, et cetera, and we've seen that renaissance of interest in basic income that was really centred around the Swiss referendum and the Finnish basic income trial that started this year. Now, now, I assume, Troy, that you're not just like a neutral academic observer. You're a proponent of UBI, is that correct? Well, you know, that depends whether I'm writing my thesis <laughs> or talking about it, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so, well, I guess... Like, you know, of course, I, I guess, of course I'm sympathetic to it, yeah, I mean... Sorry, go on. Because I guess it's like, like, what do you think is, like, be, before we can kind of, like, start kind of pulling it apart maybe or throwing some critiques, what do you think is the actual argument yep. for it? Okay, so the way I frame it is as a pragmatic utopian reform, which, I mean, other people might call it a non-reformist reform. I prefer pragmatic utopian reform or the way... Marxist feminist Kathy Weeks talks about it as a utopian demand, right? It's something that is a bit unreasonable within the sort of current uh, mainstream debate within capitalism, but it's also recognisable, right? Because all it really is is, say, paying everyone a regular pension, right? But so in some ways that sounds not all that exciting, but in other ways as you guys would both appreciate, that giving people an unconditional income, particularly working-age people in a capitalist society, that's actually something that's reasonably radical. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Th that's, that's, that's the way I think about it. It has, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more, and this probably moves into some of the more, uh, I don't know, post-capitalist framings or, you know, Andre Gortz was the main guy I was reading on this um, initially when I got interested in it. And it's about a way of opening, opening up spaces. Like Andre Gortz explicitly sees it as an exit route from capitalism. I don't know if that's true. Um, but what I think is true is that we all have certain needs that in some way at the moment need to be met with an income and having a secure regular income opens up more opportunities to live in different ways. So, for example, I'm whether it's Andre Gortz or a philosopher like Frithjof Bergman or Paul Goodman writing in the 1960s, writing about living in two different worlds, right, that you might, to put it in blunt terms, you've got your capitalist job three days a week and you're living in your commune or whatever they call it today uh two or three days a week or so so th there's some scope to live a combination of a commodified and a decommodified mm. life mm. sorry john did you have anything you wanted to you wanted to add at this point i was just interested when you when you brought up kind of marxist feminism in particular because i'm interested i guess in in the whole like um wages for housework campaign mm. in the 70s and kind of like how I guess 
at the same time as we're talking about the UBI, talking about universal basic income, I guess you also need to think about, yeah, like like what's considered work and what's considered productive labor and what's worthy of being paid in a way. And this is something that, that I guess might be one of the like feminists, one of the, some of the ways I guess, you know, that, that, that we have like we can have like a Marxist feminist reading of the UBI. That's just something that I'm thinking about anyway. So so that is absolutely what Kathy Weeks is talking about when in her book, The The Problem of Work. And it really leads from a discussion of that wages for housework campaign into her advocacy of basic income as a utopian demand. And there's a huge debate within the literature um, of feminist arguments for and against basic income, mm. right? That and I'm I'm sympathetic to the arguments for, uh, you know, the, the feminist arguments for basic income in that it's a redistribution of value in the form of purchasing power from over-remunerated forms of work in the capitalist yeah. labour market to under-remunerated forms of work in the household, volunteer work, looking after children, sick parents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. There are also feminist critiques of basic income saying that, you know, it's just going to reinforce gender stereotypes and lock women even more into doing that household labour for a pittance. Yeah, that, that, that might be something that the that universal aspect of it might actually be in a way a kind of a curse because it says, you know, everybody's equal, everybody gets an equal amount of money, right? And you're not thinking about structural inequalities and other things that we might think about as radical leftists and particularly as people um, attuned to feminism and other sorts of critiques, you know, like, and this is, I guess, yeah, just something to think about. So, cause I, so I, Andrew Lee, who's whatever role he has in the, in the federal opposition, you know, so here's someone from the Labor Party who's yeah. arguing against UBI, and I guess this is happening. The very fact that he is arguing against UBI suggests that people in the Labor Party are debating it, which is weird and interesting. You know, so the argument that he makes is either that um, you would give it to everyone, therefore, since you have an unequal society, um, you give it to the rich as well as the poor. So for that to be affordable, it would be such a small amount that it would continue to impoverish the poor. Or if you make it a livable amount, it would cost so much to implement that you would have this huge rate of taxation. What's your response to that argument that's coming from the kind of the social democratic mainstream? Yeah, so obviously it's those are two of the most common criticisms. The first one is a really lame argument, right? The you know the idea, and it was disappointing. I have to see Andrew Lee making that point, Chris Bond making the same point yeah, that it's giving money to millionaires. Yeah, obviously, yeah. if you if they have an it's. It is interesting the point you made that people right at the top of the economic hierarchy of the Labor Party uh, feel that they have to respond to basic income. That's quite an interesting thing in and of mm. itself. But look, obviously, if you have a progressive tax system and it's funded in a progressive way, you're not giving money to Gina Reinhart, right? She's paying back far more in terms of tax, right, than she would be receiving a basic income. Or at least and the argument be. then becomes that, Exactly, or she moves yeah. to Singapore or whatever. Right, yeah. but the, the point about its universal or unconditional quality then is if, if Gina suddenly decides to give away all her wealth to charity, right, she just goes, I've had enough, had enough of this mining game and I'm going to set up my own commune with Twiggy Forest and a few of the other miners who, who've fun. seen the light, they yeah. would then be – exactly, I'd love to join. But, um, you know, then – they would all be entitled to whatever that basic income was, right? Mm -hmm. They would then move from being net contributors to net beneficiaries. That's mm -hmm. the point about it setting a floor, an income floor beneath which no one, including Gina and Jamie Packer and whoever else you want to chuck in the mix, uh, can fall. So that's the argument. That, to me, is it's a kind of it's a pathetic argument, right? I don't really credit it. The, the cost is completely different, right? If you, so just put it in concrete terms, if, for example, you were paying 20 million Australians, 15,000 a year, that's 300 billion, right? 
So the federal budget is $470 billion. The transfer budget is $160 billion. If I throw those numbers out, it's pretty obvious to you that it's a hell of a lot of money, mm. right? And that there's, there's no way that, you know, the next Labor government or Liberal government or Pauline Hanson government or Greens government is going to introduce this in two or three years. Well, I wouldn't have the senators. That's, that's one model. <laughs> exactly. But that's... Um, that's one model where you have a lot of churn, right? Because you're taxing people a lot and then you're giving people a hell of a lot back. So that's where some of these other arguments, which some people, you know, Milton Friedman, coming back to Milton Friedman, he advocated a negative income tax. Of course, Milton Friedman was, we know, he's a big bogeyman. He wanted to destroy the welfare state, blah, 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 blah. But the technical idea of a basic income, a tax credit, is not necessarily a bad thing. Right, the idea that say you would get again to put it in concrete terms, say the dole, say New Start was made unconditional and universal, but as is the case now, once you start earning income, you lose New Start over time, and you can fiddle around with those tax rates to make it more or less progressive, but that kind of thing. When you think New Start costs ten billion dollars, it's not actually very much money. Uh, you wouldn't know that from, you know, reading News News Limited or a- anything like that. But $10 billion with a $470 billion budget and a $1.6 trillion economy, it's just not very much money. So say you made it an unconditional universal and you didn't have to interact with the bureaucracy when you didn't have enough money, that would increase people's, I don't know, personal freedom, security, um, just make their lives a little bit easier, slightly more pleasant, and I don't know what that would end up costing. Maybe it would end up costing twenty billion or thirty billion, but it certainly wouldn't be three hundred billion. So you therefore yeah. think it's, you, don't, you think the argument it would be within the confines of a contemporary capitalist economy like Australia, something that is viable. Some version of basic income, yes is viable that that's okay. that's my view you know in terms of you, you know you do have to look at different things right you look at fiscal impact and you look at the impact on the distribution of income and the impact on poverty and those are kind of first order impacts and then the second order impacts would be things that again coming back to bill mitchell who you mentioned earlier would be labor supply response do people work more or less, um, you know, that kind of thing is much more difficult to predict out if you don't actually have the policy implemented for the whole of the nation state. Yeah. But, yes, Australia might have to increase its tax levels to, you know, French or Norwegian levels to have a reasonable income. So in that sense, yes. So there's a lot I want to talk about here. I, I guess like the one of the places where I first yeah. encountered the notion of a universal basic income was actually at the end of Empire, written by Hart and Negri. And, you know, they're, they're drawing on um, an Italian tradition of arguing for um, a universal basic income, but they've, they've called it a number of different things. And I guess for them, the rationale for it was two, has two elements to it. So on one hand, they argue for it because it fits in with their thinking that capitalism has developed to a point where the division between productive and unproductive has broken down and therefore demanding a wage for existence in society is actually saying, well, what is productive today is not just what we do in the workplace, but it is the general social life and therefore it should be remunerated, but also that they give it a kind of a tactical and strategic element to it as well that this would be something that, um, if achieved, would increase the power of labour in its struggle against capital. And so one of the things that they always complement a universal basic income with, and uh, Paolo Verno is particularly good about this, is the development of non-state forms of public democracy. And also as a kind of organising tool, like the... You know, and there's one of Negri's pieces more recently has made this explicitly, saying that you know capital rules at the moment because the working class is internally very fractured, and argues that you know a universal basic income 
might be a possible organising tool that would pull these fractions together. And there was a, a piece in Viewpoint, um, the magazine Viewpoint as well, where a, a French comrade was talking about this as a practical experience, you know, going into some of the um, poorer neighbourhoods in Paris and raising the idea of the universal basic income as, as a way that you'd be able to pull people together and, and to organise them. And I guess the thing that kind of like highlighted, this highlighted for me is that in a lot of the discussions that I'm seeing now, like what's what seems to be missing is some kind of understanding about the kind of antagonistic nature of capitalist society itself. That this is actually mm. a power struggle. You know, if you look, if when I look at Bill Mitchell's work, the thing that strikes me is this this framework where he seems to be basically saying there is the state, and the state is just kind of this empty tool, right? And then there's kind of good ideas and bad ideas in the form of policy, and there's been this bad policy that's been doing these things, and if we can get the good policy in, then the state can redirect the economy in a different way. And that just seems to my mind like totally, like totally mystifying what the state is, but totally also mystifying what capitalist society is as well. Mm. Yeah, so I think there's a lot to respond to there. Um, I'd start off by saying that I, I totally agree with that analysis about, you know, the initial starting point you were saying about there are all sorts of different types of work within a capitalist society that should be remunerated. I suppose I see wealth as inherently social and evolutionary, right? And the idea of breaking it down to just one individual's contribution or even just yeah, I suppose the productive classes contribution to the production and reproduction of capitalism as a, a limiting view. So uh, I support that type of argument in favour of basic income. On the sort of the class analysis, the strategic stuff, the organising tool, I would say yes, but, and, and, and the biggest point that I'd say here is that a progressive basic income would only be won by mass mobilisation of the working class mm. or, or the vast majority of people. And that's, I find that, you know, and I completely agree with you both in terms of whether it's the very technocratic approach of some left-wing social democratic economist whose work in many respects I respect, but it is limited and technocratic, and also this kind of idea that, you know, a tweet from Elon Musk or or Zuckerberg or whoever else that like that will be the decisive thing that delivers basic income. Because when it comes down to it, if if basic income um, results or or means necessitates a significant redistribution of income and wealth from the wealthy to the majority of people, it's going to be resisted by most mm. of the wealthy. That yeah. is, to me, a completely elementary point and maybe that is lost on some bi advocates who who don't have much of a sort of class analysis and i think this this like links it um to another thing that i'm, I'm kind of observing from the outside um which seems to be the kind of way that ubi is is suggested as if it would kind of solve and improve capitalism where the way if you're linking it to a movement that increases our capacity to exist autonomously within capitalism, that it like would have to you'd have to struggle to win it, and if we won it, it would then solidify our, our ability to struggle even further. It would actually make capitalism function worse. Mm. You know, like you, if if you create a situation where we all say globally at the moment we have well, we have an oversupply of capital and an oversupply of labour. Say we have a struggle within whatever countries where you have mass movements of people that win a UBI. Those mass movements would destabilise capitalism further, potentially causing capital flight. But also if it was one, those people would increase their bargaining power, no longer have to be relying on work anymore, be able to force up wages, cause a pro Like this would all make capitalism work worse, where it seems to be a lot of the debate seems to be saying how this would make, this would fix the problems within capitalism. Does that difference make sense to you? It does. And 
I think, you know, I completely agree. Both sides of that argument are put forward, right? So it would make capitalism worse, potentially. So say it would be inflationary or Mm. or it would force huge numbers of people to drop out of the labour force, which some people on the progressive left would say, well, that's a very bad thing, right? Or others would say... You know, this is a way of in, increasing class power and opening up different ways of living mm. uh, within capitalism and then p- potentially something else. And then there are also those who would say, well, actually, it's going to um, boost, you know, put a floor under consumption. It will, uh, you know, boost aggregate demand, maybe compensate for uh, stagnant or long-term stagnation of wages. And I've got to be completely honest with you, I don't know which of those arguments are correct. And I don't really think anyone does. John, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested. You've gotten onto that point about about stagnant wages. And I think one thing we have to think about, of course, and maybe this is like an obvious point, is like what is work and who's doing work and how is work changing and the fact that we are seeing going to see increasingly a real absence of jobs, right? We're already seeing stagnant wages growth and we're going to lose, what is the statistic, like 40% of jobs will be gone in the next 20 or 30 years, right? Like, so we're looking at, in a way, I think people, when they talk about that UBI will solidify capitalism, what they mean is that a whole bunch of people who are going to be made unemployed by robots will still have bargaining power, will, will still have buying power, sorry, not bargaining power, the other thing. They'll be able to still buy and consume products. See, but that seems to be that kind of argument about that, that the UBI will... Um, will allow for capitalism to continue to function in a world in which human labor is no longer the source of value or no longer the only source of value? Well, John, that's really interesting because, you know, one thing that I've noticed is both people like Zuckerberg and um, Musk and also Srinicek and Williams in some ways are making the same point where they say there is something about this precise historical moment where the technological development that capitalism is currently driving will lead to yeah. an increasing, well, it's not just the technological development, but there's something about the, the nature of capitalism in this moment, the kinds of technologies that are being deployed will, f- will incre- further increase a surplus population and not lead to the growth of employment as various other kinds of industrial revolutions produced. That seems to be key, that this idea that UBI is happening now because this is the moment for UBI. And that's happening both on the right and the in the left. Is that pretty common to the literature, Troy, that there's an emphasis that something is specific about capitalism now where wage labour itself is giving away? You are absolutely correct. And I've got to admit, I'm hugely sceptical of this argument which you're completely correct that it's put forward by both, you know, the radical left and what what do you call them? The the Silicon Valley tech tech bros, exactly. Um, That this particular wave of automation and digitization, and yes, we hear all those statistics about, you know, 47% of jobs will be displaced, blah, blah. You know, the actual paper just says that those jobs are vulnerable to automation as you know, there's always a trade-off. If, if, if we have uh, a further massive expansion of the working class, well, will wage labour just still be more competitive than most robots in most industries? You know, that's yeah. a possibility. But And what adds to my scepticism about this current bout of automation anxiety is that we've seen it before several times. Yeah, I mean, yeah. actually, in the 1960s and 70s, the same argument, Arguments were used to argue for basic income that time and also for a four-day work week, which I've also done some research on. It's exactly the same arguments were put forward. And it doesn't necessarily mean that this time, you know, um, won't be different or that there isn't a long-term trend towards – like we've definitely seen in Australia – 
the average rate of unemployment has tripled in the last 40 years and the average rate of underemployment has quadrupled in the last 40 years. Um, and we know that spatially particular industries get wiped out. But then we also, if we take the long sweep of capitalist development, we go, well, outside of Great Depressions, unemployment really sort of fluctuates between 5 and 10%. And will this current wave of technological change be bigger than, say, the radical productivity gains in agriculture or the Industrial Revolution or all these sort of examples that we can cite of a massive technological displacement, displacement of labour, but new jobs opening up. And I, I just, if I could just make one more point, I think there's just a little bit of a danger if a whole lot of basic income advocates say these things like 30, 40% of jobs will be gone in 10 or 20 years and then they're not, and then you kind of look like an idiot. Yeah. I, I think you, yeah. you know you'd locate it to forty years ago, but it, you know having similar debates. But it's interestingly in Rosa Luxemburg's accumulation of capital, you know she, she goes back and sees this debate going on in writers like Sismondi and Malthus. So when are they writing? Like late seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds. Yeah. No, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't read Malthus or Sismondi. Um, I don't even know that's if how you pronounce his name. But Sismondi <laughs> is making a very similar argument, which is saying technological like as Luxembourg presents it is that technological development is leading to the displacement of the worker and their immiseration. So you have rising productivity and rising immiseration. We need to do something to guarantee people's subsistence, right? And that's the same argument we're getting now, isn't it? That we have rising technological productivity and this rising technological productivity is leading to to an increasing miseration. There seems to be like a core truth to that, you know, as a continual dynamic that gets played out within capitalism. Um, but I'm just not so sure about that kind of argument that says this moment is different from any other moment. And, uh, and I also wonder, like, how it... Um, it figures the surplus population, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, that, that, they, that these people outside... And look, this probably goes back to the point you were making before, John, about what is considered work, both from that kind of mm. radical perspective of, like, what is work, but also all the different forms of labour that are actually exploited by capital. George Kofensis mm. has this article written about Negri and Rifkin making these kind of end-of-work arguments in the end of the 90s. And one of the points that he makes is that actually, historically in capitalism, it hasn't just been wage labour that has been the forms of work necessary to exploit exploitation, but all these things that we would consider surplus or at some level outside the capital relation are actually the foundation for it, whether that be, you know... Um, prison labour, whether that be, um, you know, illegal forms of work, whether it be organ trading, mm. whatever that kind of stuff that seems aberrant outside of it is actually part of the planetary work machine. And that's mm. certainly not a future we should celebrate, but I'm wondering about, or a reality or a present we should celebrate, but these arguments about the disappearance of wage labour, forget <laughs> that wage labour, even though knows everyone who reads capital sees it's crucial to the capital relation historically hasn't been the only forms of work that have been necessary for capital accumulation to happen completely agree and i think it's very difficult to predict say what's going to be the situation in the middle of this century in terms of the contribution of that type of work outside of the formal wage relation to the production and reproduction of capitalism and how much more of that population might be brought into the formal wage relation. You know, we know that Africa is going through an absolute demographic boom at the moment and will that result in a massive increase in the surplus population or just a huge new pole of global demand for the further development of capitalism? Mm. Mm. And it seems, to, but it seems to be like something that, um, you know, often sneaks into, particularly Marxist influence thought, is this like almost like a failure in the confidence of the class in itself in a moment to be able to win something. So you have to say, well, there's this broader systemic catastrophe that is going to bring this about in itself. You know, a final crisis of capitalism. 
and I the and I it never is right like there never is this this kind of, this final crisis and I it's I don't really I think it speaks to a weakness in an actual confidence in contingent political struggles. I completely agree with that too, and I think that's why I'm more sympathetic to some of these um, framings of basic income from Gortz and Kathy Weeks and Sneerchek and Williams and um, Paul Mason, where it's really a demand, right? And and also the stuff with the technological change. You know, we demand full automation or something. Mm. You know, we don't know exactly mm. what that means or how, but but it's it's a positive. De- demand it's not a defensive thing it's kind of getting by the loss of faith in utopianism i suppose or radical change that accompany the failure of the soviet union and all the communist experiments in the 20th century and i see it as 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 a positive thing yeah of course you know we want to get rid of we want to we want to automate everything as much as possible the best argument for the ubi as far as i'm concerned is is He's kind of marks in his young moment when he's talking about, you know, that we should, you know, we can plow the fields in the morning, paint in the afternoon, critique in the evening. And, and I think he re- he, sort of he reared cattle at some point as well, didn't he? <laughs> it was a busy yeah, day. Yeah. It was a busy, <laughs> it was a busy, but, but see, I guess the thing is, you know, like when, when Marx is talking about that, that's in the context of communism. So this is a world without wage labour, without the commodity, yep. without money, where UBI is still an imagining and demand within that world. And look, yeah. so what makes it different from any of those? Because, you know, reading Srinicek and Williams, you know, they're really explicit. They're saying, you know, our political strategy of UBI, full automation, you know, this is not going to be anti-capitalism. It's going to be a different form of capitalism that will might open the possibility of anti-capitalism. What makes that different from like all those arguments for social democracy in the 20th century? You know that this is a a step along the way that never got there, or even you know for under real existing socialism, we've got to do all these things, all these steps to get to communism, but we never get there. What makes something like a what was the terms that you used before? A programmatic utopian reform or a utopian demand different yeah, from you, that social democratic exper- experience? I think only one thing, and it's completely correct to say that it may not lead any further than, you know, a more radical form of social democracy. Uh, let's uh, face up to that. But its potential is in partially severing the link between wage labor and income for everybody that's that's its radical um twist on uh you know or it's, it's radical advance on a lot of other reforms so if you want to contrast it with the job guarantee scheme which is just you know you could say it's a more generous work for the doll scheme, right? Because everyone's getting mm. the minimum wage. Well, no, the, job, um, the job guarantee, like, actually, can I just stop there? The job guarantee scheme is horrible, right? Because it, it, it like, it, it's just wrong on so many levels. Like, it, not only does it mystify the state, the state's relationship to capitalism, but it blunts the idea that we want to free ourselves from work, but rather mm. draws on the most, like, reactionary or and mainstream idea that work... Or, or the, well, it just completely says wage labour and meaningful human creativity are the same things. Where, for, like, where it says, yes, people must have an active engagement in the world, and that is wage labour, where it seems to me the basis of a radical critique is the idea that wage labour is an alienating and exploitative, exploitative experience. You know, the, for me, one of the few reasons that, that, that um, UBI is appealing is its ability for us to refuse the bribery that forces us into wage labour now and increase our power to abolish wage labour in its entirety. Like the idea of a future being endless state guarantees of work, that's like some... It's like someone's seen Hayek's critique of social democracy and gone, oh, actually, that seems pretty great. Guaranteed misery. That's the only only slogan that I support. Yeah, it's like 50s UK forever. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's extremely productivist and technocratic 
and really reinforces the work ethic where, as you were saying, I think that, you know, UBI does some violence really to the work ethic, which is, if you want to talk politics, that's also one of the major points to cultural mm. resistance be to UBI. And to be honest, that's the case when, you know, Nixon and the New Deal bureaucrats were talking about it in the 1960s and 70s, the working poor and the union movement, they didn't support it. They're not interested in it. Mm. You know, it and wasn't the framed. The same way that the, uh, the Labor Party today. That was in the interest of working class. Well, yeah, well, the same way that the, the, the Labor Party today are all about the dignity of work. You know, the, the Labor Party in Australia... And the Australian, in Australian history, if you go back and you talk about um, the union movement and we talk about arbitration and we already have on this show a lot, you know, like this is all based around work and about mm. citizens as workers. Citizens are productive and engaging workers. That's what yeah. we are, you know, like that's the basics in a way of, of, of Australian citizenship and that's what entitles one to the benefits of, of the Australian welfare state. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And and maybe when you have unemployment of 1% to 2% or, you know, and it's on that male breadwinner model and manufacturing yeah. employs 30% and you've got real wages growth of 3 or 4% a year, that kind of yep. model can work okay. Um, yeah. But we don't have that now. And I don't see even the Labor Party coming out and saying, look, you know, our goal for the next three years of government is to get unemployment to 2%. Yeah. So uh, that is, in a way, that's their only thing. It's, uh, that, that's still what they kind of do. What, what else are they arguing if they're talking about this, that the Labor Party is for a return to the dignity of work? Yeah. But I think, I think the other thing, John, that's really important, and this comes up in the points that you make in your work all, all the time, was that that history of the Labor Party and has been also the exclusion of access yep. to the Australian labour market through racist border policies, which again is, yep. you know, a, I think a really important question for the UBI, who gets it, right, particularly yep. in, in an unequal world. And I guess that's the second point, like the kind of the, um, the celebrated Keynesian social democratic model only happened in a world order that was deeply unequal. Mm. And so one of the questions we got on the Facebook group was, I guess, about this, you know, I wonder if you can speak to this, Troy, what's going on in the UBI literature about the unequal nature of the global order and that, you know, the, the wealth that is concentrated in certain areas of the globe is a product of 500 years of colonisation, then imperialism, then empire, and is defended by sharp border policies. Yeah, look... I can speak only – I know there have been proposals for, say – I mean, this doesn't really deal with the point you're saying about the, the global level of inequality. There have been proposals for, say, a European-wide basic income. I think some people have even tried to propose a global basic income. Um, and as I did say, there are a bunch of – nation-state-based experiments or movements with it mm. um, in poorer countries. To, to be totally, you know, frank, I don't think it's going to be one straight off on like a pan-regional or a global level. I still think that the most likely site for winning some form of basic income is the nation-state. That's just my assessment of, uh, you know, the pragmatic politics at this particular time that we find ourselves in, but it would be very important to, you know, make it available for all residents, you know, like not make it a thing that was just for uh, citizens or, you know, a select group of people who are then supported by the labour of I don't know. Let's say an example of a country that has a huge temporary migrant population that does most of the work, right? So, I don't know. But what's uh, one of the Gulf states, for example, where you mm. know the 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 citizens are like twenty percent of the population, and eighty percent are migrant workers. You know, that would be a pretty exclusionary approach to basic income. Yeah, but well, even, you know, it was constant stories in Australia about, you know, wage theft that happens to non-English speaking migrants that are working in the service economy in Australia. Um, mm. You know, so this is this is a reality about, uh, about the contemporary globe. There's few places that doesn't have a large proportion of the workforce that are non-citizens already in hyper-exploited conditions. 
Mm. All right, everyone. I'm putting on a five-minute mark. Okay. okay. We'll hit the hour. So right. we'll have some concluding thoughts around the idea, I think, of what's the viability of the UBI in Australia? What, where's, where are we at? What's happening in this area? And do we want to... I should start. Is this... Yeah? Yes. Um, go for it. Okay, I think we're at the very, very early stages of any type of basic income movement in Australia. Like, to be honest, Australia's, uh, there was really no uh, discussion or real interest outside a couple of academics, even if we go back to, say, two or three years ago. Now there are, you know, it's not a big thing, but Facebook groups with 500 people, people talking to each other in different cities. There's the first academic seminar on basic income in Melbourne coming up in a couple of weeks. So there are the beginnings of discussions of it. Obviously, the Greens leader came out and said, you know, they supported looking at a basic income. There are Labor left people who support basic income. There's an article about it just about every day in the newspapers. I think we're a long way off, say, getting the union movement to get behind a basic income and mm. uh, or even just broad swathes of the general population. Mm. And I think... There's a huge like political education and organisation campaign around that. And the you'd probably need to combine something like basic income with talking about things like, I'm going to kind of slightly contradict myself, but go back to things like let's have a uh, full employment but with a shorter working week and look at a basic income and we need to do something about housing policy and childcare policy. You can't think of basic income as just this yeah, standalone no. that's not it's connected with all these other things. Mm. I guess, like, first of all, I, I need to thank um, regular friend of the show, Michael, for uh, giving us a huge amount of um, readings on the UBI, yes. which have boggled my brain. Um, I guess my thinking on it is twofold. Like, the, I see... As much as that UBI is currently functioning to direct a whole bunch of comrades back towards policy and technocratic solutions, I see it as a kind of a negative. This kind of where there's a debate going on between the UBI and the guaranteed um, jobs, mm. jobs guarantee, whatever it is, as if these are things that could be implemented in Australian capitalism via currently existing political parties and policies. I think that mystifies our condition and is making people focus in the wrong direction. However, I think if there's a possibility to experiment with it in that um, kind of uh, Italian or French way of seeing it as a, as a way to organise people in the here and now as a, you know, as a directional demand for something that might be able to connect to the internally heterogeneous and fractious nature of the class, mobilise something as something we'd want to win to continue class going forward, I think that's great. But I don't think a UBI could manufacture that movement. You know, I think there's other reasons why relatively low levels of struggle currently exist in capitalism and a good demand can't do that you'd need to do a whole bunch of other compositional work and also just the kind of general dynamics and movements of capitalism. That, that would be my, like, it, can, it should be considered in that ferment, but it's not a solution. Cool. John, you've got to give I'm us your final thought. I'm happy to leave it thought. at that. Ah. Oh. <laughs> no, no, you know, I, I've, I mean, my, my interest in this, I'm, I, I was kind of thinking about this as a, in terms of, the, of a historical theory of... Uh, that maybe the UBI is something that's always brought up when we're looking at, a, at moments of a recomposition of the labor force and recomposition of capital. And that this UBI concept is something that gets brought up historically when there are significant moments, mm. or at least imagined moments, where really interesting. the capitalist relations are not necessarily challenged, but are in flux and are in formation due to maybe mechanical or technical shifts within capitalism itself. Mm. So that's something, that's something interesting. And yeah, I mean, um, I'll just shout out quickly, the Victorian Labor Party has recently adopted a pilot scheme for UBI, in, um, apparently. So that might be something to look into as well. See, that makes me like it less. Yeah. <laughs> 
That'll annoy several people. <laughs> well, Troy, thank you very much um, for no Matt, joining us tonight on Living the Dream. Yeah. I found that I found that really useful, and um, people who are listening, you know. Um, Get involved in uh, Twitter discussion. Uh, if people want follow up, uh, you know you've, you've said something wrong, and you, we want to do more shows on UBI. Hit us up on the Facebook page, and we'll go from there. Um, thanks, Troy. That's been uh, really great. Um, any final words? No, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. All right. Well, great. catch you around. Thank you so much. See you. You've been listening to Living Cheers. the Dream. Oh.